Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off podcast. On this week's show, Bill Cohan, author of Why Wall Street Matters. There would be no Apple, as I talk about in the book. There'd be no pickup trucks or gun racks or not. There'd be none of that. None of that. There'd be no farming. There'd be none of the things that we take utterly and completely for granted if it hadn't been for how good Wall Street is. This is a national jewel. Hi, I'm Jill Schlesinger, and this is the Better Off Podcast, sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. This week, we've got a great guest, William Cohan, also known as Bill. He is a fantastic author. He wrote House of Cards, the tale of hubris and wretched excess on Wall Street. He wrote about Goldman Sachs. The book was called Money and Power. But now he's got a new offering. And I think this one's kind of interesting because you think this is a guy who's a critic of the industry. Well, he's just written a new book and it's called Why Wall Street Matters. Yeah, it does. And it's kind of interesting that so often we presume that because someone has written critically about the industry that perhaps he or she doesn't actually think this industry is worth anything. But there are so many amazing parts of what the business of Wall Street and the financial sector can do. But what's most important about what Bill talks about is that the pre-Dodd-Frank Wall Street is obviously very different than the post-Dodd-Frank Wall Street. And amid all of the changes to Dodd-Frank that this administration is proposing, it will be interesting to hear what Bill thinks is the best prescriptive course of action in the future to clean up the excesses, but also to allow the business to operate as it should. So stay tuned. Great interview with Bill Cohan. And don't forget, at the end of the interview, we've got the listener question of the week. If you would like to join us, just give us a holler. It's so easy to do. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com and we'll get you on the air. And now here's my interview with Bill Cohen. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for our big interview, and today, a very special guest. We have author William D. Cohen, also known as Bill, who's just written an amazing book called Why Wall Street Matters. We'll link to that. Don't worry. But I just want to let you know, this guy is no, like, neophyte writer. New York Times bestselling author of The Price of Silence, Money and Power, House of Cards, which may be the biggest book, and The Last Tycoons, which won the 2007 FT Goldman Sachs Business Book of the Year. You're a special correspondent at Vanity Fair. You write a biweekly opinion column in the New York Times. You've written for everybody. You're such a schlub. You went to Duke. You went to Columbia twice. It's embarrassing, that kind of resume. It's It's a scary resume, but it's served me well. We like to start the interview with a very searing question. You ready? I'm ready. What's the very best money decision that you've made in your personal life? Uh, aside from, say, getting married, because there's obviously well, like, benefits. Why? Because she like made she was she rich or no? But <laughs> I think there are. I'm told. I'm constantly told there are like tax benefits for being married. Uh, I think that. Um, you know, I knock what I've made a few. I mean, one of the nice things about having been a banker is that you do understand money and the way it works and investments. Uh, I don't give investment advice, but I would say my best investments have been my, uh, my real estate ah. uh, because I uh, was able to buy, you know, obviously real estate market is very cyclical, but I was able to buy all three 
of my homes at, at, at this, a very smart time, and they've all appreciated. Let's get into this book. Yeah. Uh, why'd you write this book, Wall Street, Why Wall Street Matters? You've been uh, somewhat of a critic yes. of the excesses of Wall Street. So we, in this book, you're kind of a cheerleader for the business. Right. And I think that uh, part of that is because, you know, the pendulum swings, right? Um, I'm a reporter. I'm an investigative reporter. And so uh, I pride myself on calling it like I see it. And uh, when I wrote the book about Lazard, I mean, Lazard was sort of all about over-the-top personalities and excess. Uh, The collapse of Bear Stearns, that, of course, was an unbelievable story of mismanagement and absurd risk-taking. Goldman is, of course, all about, uh, you know, excess and flamboyance in so many different ways. So, I mean, and and then when you, and and a big part of the Goldman book also was about how Goldman managed to um, both at once exacerbate the crisis and avoid it for its own account. Uh, And so as a result of those three books, I just uncovered so much wrongdoing that uh, led to, uh, in many respects, the financial crisis. And so, so that, that was my view. And uh, But I think what happened was uh, the catalyst. Let's go there. The catalyst for the sort of Nixon opening China moment is uh, when Elizabeth Warren prevented uh, Antonio Weiss from becoming, I think, an undersecretary of the Treasury only because he had worked on Wall Street. He had worked, he was head of investment banking at Lazard. It turned out that um, I trained Antonio uh, when I was a banker at Lazard. And uh, Antonio is a great guy. And he has a very progressive thinker. His politics were actually quite close to Elizabeth Warren's. And yet she would not even take a meeting with him, even after President Obama nominated him. And I thought that was Unacceptable, And so that said to me that the pendulum had swung too far and, and I just had to write this. And in your introduction, you say, I agree with much of the progressive agendas advocated by Senators Sanders and Warren, and I have voted Democratic my entire adult life. But they haven't a clue when it comes to understanding Wall Street. So what do what do they need to understand and what do other people need to understand as they're listening to this and have maybe that vampire squid notion of Wall Street and, and the yeah, distrust. Sure. Well, I mean, that was obviously a, a line for the ages, right? But unfortunately, it has nothing to do. I mean, what does it even mean anyway? Uh, but it's one of those great images that summed up uh, the zeitgeist at that particular moment. I mean, the short answer is what people need to understand is, you know, is contained in this relatively short book, especially a short book for by, by William Cohen's standards. But the, the, the important thing... You know, what's sort of shocking about, I mean, I can almost forgive Senator Sanders. He's a a vuncular, you know, former mayor of Burlington, Vermont. Uh, You know, what does he know about, you know, he grew up in Brooklyn. What does he know from Wall Street? But Elizabeth Warren is a bankruptcy or was a bankruptcy professor at Harvard Law School. Now, when I was at Lazard, I, I did a lot of restructuring work. And one thing restructuring work teaches you fundamentally is how capital structures work, how subordination works, how claims work and liens work, and how you you know take apart these capital structures that Wall Street puts together. And I don't see how you could teach that subject at Harvard Law School without understanding how Wall Street works. So to me, either she is being 
willfully deceitful about her understanding, or she it's it's even worse. She doesn't understand, and she should never have been teaching uh, at, at Harvard Law School in the first place. But the the, the thing to really uh, that that I think is fundamental, and I go through the history of Wall Street, and you know there was actually a wall that was built, which was why it was called Wall Street. And uh, but basically, Wall Street what Wall Street has done really well for more than two hundred years is provide capital to people who want it and are willing to pay a fair price for it, businesses, entrepreneurs, taking that money from people who have it. It's really a clearinghouse. It's sort of an interstitial uh, kind of function. Uh, And it does that in a really, really efficient, smart way. There would be no CBS Corporation. There would be no Apple, as I talk about in the book. There'd be no pickup trucks or guns or gun racks or not. I mean, There'd be none of that. None of that. There'd be no farming. There'd be none of the things that we take utterly and completely for granted if it hadn't been for how good Wall Street is. And by the way, it's a world leader. Other governments look to it. Other corporations around the world look to it to to finance them and for advice. Uh, This is a national jewel. And the beautiful machine that Wall Street created to finance companies for the past two or three hundred years is remarkable. And my view was that, you know, because of not only Elizabeth Warren, but Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, who were crapping out all over Wall Street for the last eight years. And I understand why that all happened, because there's, you know, political opportunism and it was you know very popular. And it and, and by the way, Wall Street did mess up and, right. and wasn't held accountable for it. But but what's happening, unfortunately, with all this huge re-regulation of Dodd-Frank and the 20,000 uh, pages of, of additional rules and regulation is that you're throwing sand into the beautiful machine. And when you throw sand into the beautiful machine, you're kind of, as Larry Summers has written so articulately and talked about so articulately, you, you, you've got what is called the secular stagnation, or what he's called secular stagnation, and condemning the American economy to like 2% growth. And you saw in the end of last year, we grew at like 1.9%. No wonder people are frustrated by that because that's not high enough growth. Let's go back to what I think you believe may be the original sin that started the the beginning of the excesses. Now, uh, you know, full disclosure, my dad was a trader on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. So all these like fancy investment bankers, that was like a world away from me. But he would say to me, you know, we're trading here, we're making some money. He would say to me, it's not like you are enhancing capitalism by being a trader necessarily. That's what investment bankers do. And so you talked about that. What happened as these big institutions went from being private partnerships where the partners had their own money at risk to publicly traded companies. What happened then? Well, that that's the crucial moment. That's that's like the big bang. People talk about the big bang on Wall Street and they say it's, you know, r- related to brokerage firms or whatever. The big bang on Wall Street was 1970. Really 1969 when this highly respected firm Donaldson Lufkin Genret, small firm, incredibly profitable, decided to buck the New York Stock Exchange rules, which were quite clear and formidable, and no one had ever tried to do it before, and wanted to go public. And in fact, Dan Lufkin, who was one of the founders of DLJ, uh, went to his first New York Stock Exchange Board of Governors meeting with his S-1, this registration statement for an IPO, uh, under his arm. 
Uh, he had just filed it, mm. and he brought it to the Board of Governors meeting, and you know the great you know New York Stock Exchange Board of Governors w- were aghast that Dan Lufkin had flouted the rules so explicitly and willingly. But they were determined for the for for right reasons. By the way, I mean it's sort of ironic that that Wall Street is in the business of raising capital for others, but was not allowed to raise capital for itself. So these firms had been you know undercapitalized. In 1970, a DLJ uh, was no longer private. It went public. The, they got the New York Stock Exchange to change the rules. And then one after another, one firm after another, uh, went public. Uh, you know, when Merrill Lynch announced it was going public two years later, which was the biggest securities firm on Wall Street, that was front page news on in the New York Times, the upper right hmm. story, the biggest story of the day. Basically, that changed the whole ethos on Wall Street from one where – you know, individual partners had their own net worths on the line every day, and it could be lost in an instant by something foolish that one of their partners would do to a culture where everybody was playing with other people's money. But meanwhile, the the barn door was open. Everyone goes public, even everybody. Goldman. And I mean, in they ma- were they went May made 1999. The, right. So that's the yep. top right there. there you go. Now that all these companies are public. Um, they're they're very excited about using the public money and increasing their risk levels to and and yes I know the dot com boom and bust hurt them but but coming out of that there were all these great ways to make money and I think that you're suggesting that there's no way those companies if they were private partnerships would have levered up thirty to one there would be no financial crisis if they were personally on the line for those bets so so. It gets a, a little complicated because obviously before 1970, uh, the firms uh, were occasionally quite levered because they didn't have much capital. They were levered in the sense that they were undercapitalized, right? Uh, but they were taking prudent risks with their own money. So that's a mentality, right? Right. And then all these firms start going public. They are much have much more capital. They get rewarded to take big risks with other people's money. This whole ethos of prudent risks with their own money, money is lost. And and that was married, as I talk about in the book, uh, at a time of actually incredible innovation on Wall Street, the securitization market, the derivatives market, the high yield market. All those things got created. Which are not bad things. They're all good things. Okay. So everyone, like, take a deep breath when you hear They're that. They're all really important things. By the way, uh, just parenthetically, I'll never forget when uh, my mother called me and said, aren't you a derivatives trader? Like, it was such an accusation. I'm like, well, yes, that's how I got my training. Remember, I traded options. She's like, well, that's not good right now. Well, I mean, another one of the reasons I wrote this book is because Wall Street has constructed this black box around itself. And, you know, they have their own language. And once people start hearing it, their eyes glaze over. It's like, you know, talking about the Affordable Care Act or something. People don't know how to understand it. And so I wanted to make this Wall Street understandable to the people who basically said, who are too afraid to admit that they don't understand what Wall Street's all about, to ask someone. It's like, okay, I'm I'm 45 years old now. I should I, know. I, I, I should know. I've gone through my whole life thinking, you know, thinking I should know, and now I don't want to ask anybody. But if I can just pick up this book and understand it, then we can actually have a discussion about it because it's laid out fairly simply and clearly. And uh, it's it's just a shame that something this important has been shrouded in so much mystery and is so easily manipulated by politicians and regulators who want to demagogue the issue. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. 
We'll get back to our interview with Bill Cohen in just a moment. But uh, it's really important now to think about some of these concepts he's just brought up, how regulators and politicians can kind of mess with you. That's why we love the fact that Betterment is our sponsor. Betterment is the largest independent online financial advisor, and it has just one purpose, to help you make the most of your money. Gosh, isn't that easy? It's not to sell you stuff. It's not to give you stuff you don't need. Betterment takes proven investment strategies that have been around for decades and uses technology to deliver that advice and those strategies to you. Maybe you're one of their 250,000 customers. Based on your financial planning needs, Betterment will provide you with personalized advice for retirement planning, building wealth, and other financial goals. Then Betterment invests your money works to lower your taxes, and increase returns. Sounds pretty great, right? If you do want to talk to someone about your specific financial situation, you can access a team of licensed financial experts. Betterment cares about keeping your money and data secure. They've got advanced data encryption and login protection. Betterment charges one low transparent fee, and for a limited time, you can get up to six months managed for free. For more information, visit betterment.com slash better off. That's betterment.com slash better off. Betterment. Rethink what your money can do. And now back to my interview with Bill Cohan. Okay, we have this terrible crisis and we get this over the top Dodd-Frank reform, whatever was 2300 pages or something horrible like that. When you look at what happened in the crisis and the aftermath, the response to it, what do you think should have happened So the first thing that should have happened after the crisis is that there should have been real prosecution of wrongdoing, full stop. And where would that have started? Oh, my God. In your mind. There was so much evidence of wrongdoing. I mean, I've had this discussion with Preet Bharara. You know, he's made his bones as uh, prosecuting insider trading, which is low-hanging fruit. Uh, He should have spent much more time uh, and effort and energy Uh, going after Wall Street, because it's important for people to see that when wrongdoing occurs, uh, people get punished for it. Okay, let me push back. When I talk to Wall Street attorneys, Mm -hmm. um, they'll say to me, the reason they didn't bring a case is because there was no criminal wrongdoing, and these civil cases are too thorny, and they didn't want to lose, and da-da-da-da-da, that's the the line. Okay, well, so the the da-da-da-da-da didn't want to lose line, uh, that's an interesting uh, argument. And that came from the fact that when they prosecuted the two Bear Stearns hedge fund uh, managers in the Eastern District of New York, the federal prosecutors lost the case. It went to a jury and the jury acquitted the men. Now, in my book, House of Cards, I, I cite several documents which show clear intent of these two guys to basically deceive their investors. Okay. And that book came out before the trial. All they had to do, these smart alecky federal prosecutors, was read my book. And that section of the book where I cite these documents, they could have just subpoenaed those documents. I got them, they could get them, and they could have used them. But they didn't do that, and they didn't use them, and these guys walked away. So, so that was an early loss that kind of freaked out the, freaked the out other the folks. Justice Department and said that was, you know, October 2009 or whatever it was. You know, uh, if we can't win that one, then, you know, there must be nothing here. And, and by the way, that was just one instance. I mean, I've written countless stories about whistleblowers at Citigroup, at J.P. Morgan Chase, at Barclays, where compliance officers, managers clearly saw wrongdoing. 
especially around um, knowingly packaging up these mortgages that they knew uh, did not meet their credit standards. They knew that the people who took out these mortgages would never pay them back, and they packaged them up, slapped the AAA rating on them, and sold them as investments all around the world. And, and they knowingly did that, and I've written plenty of stories about those people. Those people end up getting fired, and their, their dossiers sort of get referred to the SEC or the Justice Department, and nothing ever happened. Okay, but we can't go back and relitigate right. that. So, so that should have happened. So that should have happened. We didn't it, get that. And by the way, Eric Holder... I don't get him. Like, what was this, like a huge squeeze? Because to me, instead of prosecuting, what he did is he had these very strange settlements that were, it felt like mobster-esque. Like, you know, you're just going to pay us. I've described that as extortion. Yes, I think that would be the right term. Uh, And it's extorting the shareholders who have nothing to do with what happened. Right. I mean, you're basically saying shareholders are going to have to pay these hundreds of million dollar fines because, you know, you guys are billions and and you're in the penalty box because I I didn't prosecute you the right way. So now I'm just going to grab your money. That's not the same as justice. Holding up these big banks for these huge settlements, 13 billion J.B. Morgan, 17 billion B of A, that's not the same as justice. So they were cowards. Instead of actually trying to prosecute the wrongdoing, they said, oh, by the way, we can put you out of business. We can do, we can indict you or whatever. Instead of that, you pay us all this money. Okay, so we didn't prosecute. We didn't do that. We and have this like... Re- so there's a vacuum. Right. People are angry. And into that vacuum came politicians who decided, hey, this is a good issue to demagogue. They mm. demagogued. We, we passed Dodd-Frank. It's a ridiculous law. You know, 2,300 pages, uh, 20,000 pages of rules and regulations, uh, throwing sand into the beautiful machine, as I said. Mm. So what has to happen now in your mind? I, I don't want to leave let, let you go without getting your prescription going forward. To me, it's all about the compensation system. It's all about what people on Wall Street are rewarded to do. But is and it, no can, one's talking about that. Can the government actually weigh in on that? The government can weigh in on anything it wants. If I were Donald Trump, and I've written this lately, I would make a grand bargain with Wall Street. And I would say, you know, he's like the deal maker in chief, right? Right? Yeah. Or thinks he is. Yes. Uh, I would make a grand bargain with Wall Street. I would say, you want these Dodd-Frank laws reformed. You want these regulations reformed. You want some relief from the Fed regulations. I'm willing to do that only if you reform your compensation system to make people some people, not all, the big wigs, those people need to have their full net worth on the line again. There needs to be accountability so that their mind never wanders from the idea of prudent risk-taking. So what's interesting is I felt like that opportunity was lost on Obama because there was so much crap hitting the fan in 2009 and 2010 that when he he probably could have made that deal without actually getting anything he wouldn't have to give up anything for that That's essentially true. that he, he had his 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 foot on the throat and then he let Geithner convince him that like the whole world was going to fall apart if he did something like that well that's because Geithner was basically in the pocket of Wall Street and Wall Street would not like this but there was a lot of things going on and his first mission was to you know save the economy to to you know right. to 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 stop the bleeding the, the bleeding yeah. you know absolutely put a tourniquet this is actually an, an even better moment because the economy is strong right we don't need to stop any bleeding wall street obviously wants this monkey off their back and so donald trump has an incredible amount of leverage over wall street to get this done 
You think that Mnuchin and Wilbur Ross and Gary Cohn are going to advocate for that? Well, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. I know them all. They know exactly what I'm talking about. They know I'm right. They know that this is the, you know, the the devil uh, that's once again uh, in the details of Wall Street. Uh, But will they do it? I don't know. If there were real leadership on Wall Street, if if Lloyd Blankfein were acting like a real leader or Jamie Dimon were acting like a real leader, they would voluntarily do this. They would say, no one's asking us to do this. We want to do it because it's the right thing. When was the last time on Wall Street somebody stood up and said, I want to do the right thing? I think that would have been my first boss, Peter Kellogg from Spear Leads and Kellogg. He may have been one of the last of that breed. Uh, Bill Cohen, he is the author of Why Wall Street Matters. It is a beautiful, slim little black book. You can put it, tuck it right into your knapsack or sequin evening bag. Um, before we let you go, I started the interview with what was your best money decision? What was your worst? Mm. I, I I invested in a few, uh, especially during the dot-com bubble era, a few things that sounded great that were not. And so that was it. A few good, a few bad, and net-net you're doing M- pretty most, well. Mostly good, believe that, it or not. Isn't that great? And then, and then a valuable thing I learned, and I don't like to give investment advice, but instead of freaking out when the Dow uh, goes to 6,500 in March of '09, you just stay invested and now look. Now we're 21,000 and counting, so that's easily triple your money. Bill Cohan, Why Wall Street Matters, New York Times bestselling author, and uh, a fabulous guest here on Better Off. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I loved it. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. It's our favorite part of the program. It is the question of the week. So if you've got a question and you really don't know what to do about it, or you just maybe want a second opinion, shoot us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Remember, you've got two chances every single week to get on the air. On Tuesdays, we do the Better Off bonus call of the week. And then on this longer show every Thursday, we drop in a beautiful call from one of you. And right now, we've got our next caller. And this is very exciting because we've got Bruno, who is on the line from Texas. Where in Texas are you calling from, Bruno? I'm from Houston. Excellent. All right. Tell us about what's going on for you and how we might be able to help you out. Yeah, first of all, I'd like to thank you uh, for this podcast. I've been listening from the beginning and uh, really enjoy it. So I look forward to getting that little icon on my podcast uh, every week. Excellent. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, And I kind of just wanted to ask you kind of a question to see where I'm at um, financially-wise, and then also if I should be doing a backdoor Roth IRA uh, versus a 529 as my wife and I are expecting our first child. Oh, congratulations. Okay, so tell me what's going on for you. We're expecting our first child in September. Uh, Both my wife are uh, 31, and our combined income is around 190 to 2,000 a year. Uh, pretty split even between the two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, we have one house that we have a mortgage about the 181000 left, and that's a 30-year mortgage at uh, 3.875%. Okay. Uh, we also have a rental home that at the 113 left in mortgage at a 15-year at 3.5%. Okay. Um, and the rent of that house pretty much takes care of all the break-even, um, the costs, and so associated with that rental. Great. And then we have some non-retirement accounts. Um, we have a 60000 in Vanguard ETFs. And then I got about uh, the rainy day fund of 15000 in savings and about 23000 in savings slash budgets that uh, I would assume to, you know, uh, 
use by the end of the year as well. Okay. Um, then it can to our retirements. We have about 102 in our Roth um, IRA and traditional IRA, um, and that's using both the target uh, retirement indexes at Vanguard. Mm-hmm. And then I recently started um, using our HSA accounts as an investment tool as mm-hmm. well, and not necessarily to actually use it on the year that we to put it in, but actually, you know, use its triple tax advantage and then hopefully use it when we're 50, 60 uh, years on the line and have that uh, grow exponentially as we go. That's great. On the retirement accounts, are you guys maxing out or you're putting, are you putting away $18,000 each a year into your retirement yeah. accounts? Uh, roughly, yes. Okay. Between 16 to 18%, depending on how, how the year goes. But Got it. Uh, we're, yeah, mostly, yes. Okay, great. Um, and then this year, because we both kind of got the new uh, jobs, we're going to be, we are over the 184,000 um, Roth mm-hmm. IRA limit. And so then I started looking into the backdoor um, uh, method of that. But then the little one is coming in in September. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I started looking to, should I put that, uh, you know, $11,000 in the Roth, in the backdoor Roth, mm-hmm. or maybe do a 529. Mm-hmm. Um, or even I know that, You've mentioned sometimes it's good to put some money in the non, non-retirement account. Um, you know, since in the, I can use that before because it's without taking penalties. And so I just wanted to, uh, yeah, have that question, either back to a Roth IRA 529 plan or start putting more money in my um, non-retirement Vanguard ETF. So first of all, you're doing amazing. You're doing an amazing yeah. job of saving. So uh, we need a bell of some sort. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know what we're going to But anyway, you really, it's terrific. And I think that what's really important for you is that, you know, you really, you've put the focus on retirement and that's fantastic. I always say, you know, save for retirement first. It really is very helpful. Um, now, the the other part of this is the rental property. I'm just wondering, did you, are you are you paying more on your mortgage on your rental property? Are you accelerating that or not? No. Okay. We, that rental property was initially our, our primary house, ah. and we just moved into that. Okay. I was, the reason why I was wondering is that because the mortgage was so low relative to the value of the house, but that makes more sense. Okay. Because you're, yeah. you're obviously your mortgage rates are so cheap, you don't need to start paying these down. So no, no, no. I love what you're doing. You're putting the money in the retirement, and you're, you're putting away a lot of money every year. So that's really terrific. I think that... I would probably prefer, if we really are thinking about education, is to open a 529 plan instead of doing Uh the backdoor Roth. Now, here's the thing. Here I am looking at, I'm literally on the Texas 529 website, and you've got this direct plan, which is the Texas College Savings Plan, and it's... um, you know, there are age-based options. There's different stuff in there. It's okay. It's not fabulous. It's okay. Um, I don't, I mean, you don't have, um, you don't have a state income tax in Texas, do you? No, we don't. That's what I thought. Um, So it's not, I mean, there's, these are fine. It's nothing. I mean, if you want to go look, there are, there are a couple of other um, 529 plans. If you don't love this one, if you start looking in here and you don't like the plan itself, um, the ones that I like for out-of-state residents are um, the Nevada plan, the Utah plan, the Alaska plan, and the Maryland plan. All all of those are great. 
it literally is like a Roth for education. And that's what's so cool about it, because you put the money in, it's after tax, it grows without taxation. And when the child is ready to go to college, the money can come out to pay for qualified education expenses. And guess what? No tax due. So I think that's the way I would go and be very happy to do that. You've got plenty of retirement assets, so I wouldn't go too nutty with that. And you keep doing what you're doing. I think you're really um, you're on track to to really knock it out of the park. You are doing so much good stuff here that don't make yourself crazy. Have some fun along the way, too. Okay. How's that? I think my wife will be happy with that. All right. Great. Good luck. Thanks so much for calling, Bruno. Thank you, Jill. Take care. Okay, that's a wrap. Thanks again for listening. And thanks to Bill Cohan, the author of Why Wall Street Matters. Go check out that book. You'll get a great education. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag better off. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.